Welcome to Fontanelle, the podcast with a soft spot for paediatrics. I'm Caroline Storey, a paediatric trainee in Wessex, and I met with Dr. Phil Wiley, a consultant paediatrician in Dorset County Hospital. Phil's been very involved in promoting the Healthier Together resources, offering freely accessible information about managing common conditions. He's delivered workshops to GPs and paediatric trainees in the region, and today he's going to talk to me about diarrhoea and vomiting. Certainly something we see a lot of, although we'd probably prefer less of it in our hospitals and surgeries. In fact, as Phil explains, with appropriate parental education and support, most of these patients can be safely managed at home. So over to Phil Wiley. Thank you. So, gastroenteritis, how common is it? Well, I think we all know it's incredibly common and it's one of the sort of big five hitters in terms of reasons for admission uh, to hospital. And one with appropriate advice can, in most cases, be managed at home if you give the parents the confidence and a few simple directions Mm -hmm. to manage it at home and why it's so suitable for the sort of whole ethos of Wessex Healthier Together about uh, consistent pathways and consistent advice to parents. Mm. So at least, most children will have at least one episode of a tummy upset in their preschool years. So uh, it is a really common problem. Mm. So it's very, very common. Um, how dangerous can it be? Because I think you talk about parents being worried. Um, yeah. And what are they actually worried about, do you think? Well, for the vast majority of gastroenteritis, it'll be viral. And uh, it's self-resolving. And the issue is not about antibiotics or anything that needs doctors mm-hmm. to uh, prescribe or anything. It's about fluid fluid management. And I think most parents know that. Mm-hmm. But uh, when their child is vomiting and unless they have some clear guidance as to what to do with the fluids, mm-hmm. they don't do simple things and yeah. uh, they can end up in hospital, okay. which uh, is obviously appropriate in some situations but it's a, a missed opportunity sometimes to yeah. um, give them the skills to manage it at home. Okay okay so obviously then as clinicians we need to be really clear about whether um, it can be managed at home or what the safe thresholds are and so what, what should we be looking for what should we be asking in a history? Okay good question so I think particularly in the history I appreciate in primary care you've got eight ten minutes so you've got to be very focused on your history so the things I'd be interested in with uh, a child that's presented with diarrhoea and vomiting is to have a bit more information about input and output and by Mm -hmm. input I'm meaning how much are they actually drinking, Mm -hmm. um, how much are they keeping down and output, how many times are they vomiting, how many times have they got uh, diarrhoea Um, and uh, obviously the urine output is a good measure of hydration, Mm -hmm. are they producing any urine, is it reduced Those are the sorts of key bits in the history. We'll perhaps uh, talk about some of the sort of red flag things that I perhaps Mm. asked specifically about in the history as well that might make you think perhaps this could be more than simple viral gastroenteritis. So I think if you hear a history of blood Mm -hmm. in the the stool, that Mm -hmm. would worry me. Um, That would make you think that this is an invasive gastroenteritis, um, perhaps, you know, caused by a bacteria, and the one that we worry about most in, uh, in uh, paediatrics is children having this E. coli um, 
where you can get a condition called hemolytic uremic syndrome. Mm. So I think if you've got a child with bloody diarrhoea, mm. they should be seen referred into hospital, even if they're well, mm. because you might want to be doing some blood tests to look at their renal function mm. and exclude hemolytic uremic syndrome. So blood would be one thing mm-hmm. that I'd be uh, asking about. Fever. Most children with viral gastroenteritis don't have a particularly high fever. So if you've got a parent that said, you know, their child's burning up, with mm-hmm. uh, gastroenteritis. I, again, just want to know a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about burning up, I, I probably, you probably don't want to give a specific number, but is there a threshold that would worry you? I think the Wessex Healthy Together talks about 38. Okay. And, you know, occasionally with viral gastroenteritis, you can have higher fevers, but I think it just makes you a little bit more cautious You'd that it could be some, something that. more. Tummy ache, severe tummy ache. Um, we're all caught out occasionally by the child that uh, has you know, appendicitis or some intra-abdominal pathology. So um, if you've got tenderness you know, on examination or you know, pain is a real feature, again, I think you need to be a bit more cautious and careful in your examination and just think about the other differentials. Mm-hmm. Um, vomiting can, with a viral gastritis, just have vomiting. But again, if you've got no diarrhoea with it, I think you just got to think, could it be something else? Could it be a urine infection? Mm-hmm. Could this child actually have something that we want to identify, diabetic ketoacidosis or mm-hmm. something where it's not straightforward gastroenteritis? Mm-hmm. So I think there are um, a few key questions, input, output, but then also a few supplementary questions to tr- pick out those few that aren't straightforward viral gastroenteritis. Okay, so um, so they're really important red flags to look out for. Um, just something that's just popped into my head, actually. Um, someone comes in saying, oh, I think um, my child's got food poisoning. Do you differentiate between that and viral gastroenteritis, or do you approach it the same way? That's a really good question. I'm not quite sure the answer to it. Um, I think you can treat it the same way. Generally, with food poisoning... Um, uh, it's often very short and sharp. Yeah. Um, that once the you know it's toxin related, once you know it's out of your system, um, then it, it tends you know to have a different uh, natural history, and after a few hours it settles. Yeah. And during that period that you're being sick and have diarrhoea, there's not much you can do in okay. terms of keeping fluid in. Yeah. Okay. So if this is going on for a while, then this is likely to be something. Yeah, and usually, very often, they'll, it'll be running around the nursery or yeah. other children in the household. Usually, it's not a great diagnostic dilemma. You know, the, the slight uh, warning red flags that I've talked about, those aside, most of the time, this is a pretty straightforward yeah. diagnosis. Okay. Um, all right, is there anyone that we should be particularly worried about that might come in with this? Anyone who's at risk? Yeah, well, not surprisingly, the younger a child is, the more at risk of gastroenteritis and getting dehydrated they are. So particular caution around the less than less than ones. Mm-hmm. When we refer to the Wessex Healthier Together um, uh, red, amber, green uh, stratifying uh, patients, just being less than three months of old age puts you into the amber group mm-hmm. of being more cautious mm-hmm. with those. Obviously, if you've got an unwell child before, particularly if they've not been growing well, that will uh, make them more susceptible um, to uh, getting into difficulty uh, with uh, gastroenteritis. Um, When you're taking the history, again, it's common sense. If they're vomiting numerous times, um, 
and Wessex Healthier Together talks about more than three vomits in 24 hours, they're more at risk of getting dehydration mm-hmm. and not tolerating oral fluids. And similarly, if it's pouring out the bottom end, uh, more than six episodes a, a day of diarrhoea, mm-hmm. if they're not diarrhea dehydrated when you see them, and we'll talk about how you assess dehydration, they're going to get dehydrated unless you mm-hmm. have some strategy to mm-hmm. keep their hydration adequate. Most of the time with gastroenteritis, they vomit for one or two days, okay. and then the diarrhoea carries on for longer, um, yeah. and we can talk about what's what's too long, perhaps mm-hmm. later on. Okay. Um, okay, so how do we assess someone's level of dehydration? The bottom line is it's difficult to assess okay. dehydration. Probably the two most reliable signs, but they're really much more useful in severe dehydration, are sunken eyes, and a parent is the best person to assess whether a child has sunken eyes, um, and asking the parent, mm-hmm. um, and skin turgor. Mm-hmm. The problem with both of those is that you can be quite certainly moderately dehydrated and not be able to detect it. Mm -hmm. Probably the the, definitely the best objective sign is a weight. So we talk about percentage of dehydration. If you've got a weight last week and you're in your surgery and you can put them on the electronic scales and see that they're 5% less than they were last week, you know that they're 5% dehydrated. Okay, that's... But most of the time, you don't have a recent weight to compare to. Um, Urine output is, again, a good measure of uh, hydration and how many wet nappies they've had and whether there's, uh, you know, reduced urine output. If I saw a child and the parents were saying they'd not passed urine for 24 hours or even 12 hours, Mm -hmm. I would really sit up and take notice of that Mm -hmm. and be thinking about they are... got a significant fluid loss and if I can't address that at home uh, and in the community with advice then we're going to need to think about certainly with more than 24 hours of urine output I would advise that you send those in. Okay Um, people talk about moist mucous membranes is that worth commenting on or not really? It's not in the sense it's incredibly unreliable if a child's been crying they have you know dry mucous membranes and wet mucous membranes is not particularly reassuring that they're not dehydrated. Yeah. Okay, Um, and then how do you differentiate dehydration from shock? Okay, and that's where I think there's a lot of confusion out there. There is a huge overlap, but uh, the way I think of it is dehydration is loss of extracellular fluid. It takes quite a while to develop, Mm -hmm. hours if not days. And the signs are as we've described about Mm -hmm. tissue turgor and urine output, um, sunken eyes and so on. But people often say to me, oh, I've looked at the capillary refill time and I've felt the pulses. They're signs of intravascular loss. Mm-hmm. And that's not where you're losing fluid in, the, uh, in dehydration. So I think of dehydration, looking at extracellular fluid, and then uh, pulse, capillary refill time, cold, cold peripheries, are signs of reduced intravascular volume that develops very quickly is a medical emergency. So uh, if you identify somebody that's shocked, as I said, cold peripheries, tachycardic, um, prolonged capillary refill time, perhaps even reduced blood pressure, that's a medical emergency and needs uh, immediate immediate treatment and referral Mm. to hospital. Okay, so assuming we're not dealing with someone who's shocked so we're just dealing with someone who's dehydrated um, um, or even heading that way how do we go and how do we manage it 
Okay, well let's give the scenario that we've got somebody that um, you've assessed, you're happy that they're not shocked, but you do think that they're dehydrated. You've got to get some fluid on board, but it's not an emergency because this has taken a while to develop. So if you're in the community, you might try a fluid challenge um, at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, what tends to be perpetuating their vomiting is that they become ketotic, that they've started to produce ketones and that's con making them continue to vomit. So although they're vomiting, you can still put things in the top end. Small amounts and often, um, every five to ten minutes, is more likely to be tolerated. And uh, to get a slug of fluid on board, you will switch off their ketone productions, they'll stop vomiting, and you can get them out of the vicious cycle mm -hmm. that they're in. I think it's important to think about practically what fluids to give. Mm -hmm. In an ideal situation, Darolite has good physiological reasons why it, why it works. It's got salts in there as well as the glucose and uh, is great if you have it and if the child will take it. You can make it a bit more palatable by putting some uh, dilute squash in with it to make it a bit tastier. Um, but it works really well. But if you don't have it or you don't um, can't get the child to take it. There are alternatives. Apple juice is in the community a pretty good yeah. um, uh, fluid. It should contain some sugar, and particularly young children less than a year are at risk of getting hypoglycemic. So it shouldn't just be water. Um, other primary care clinicians sometimes use flat Coke and uh, carbonated drinks. That's fine as long as you get the carbonated component, you shake it out mm. because. Uh, carbonated drinks tend to make your diarrhoea worse mm -hmm. um, and are not as well tolerated. But you need to get that slug of fluid. How much? Um, well, once you've got dehydrated, we normally talk about um, two mils per kilo every 10 minutes or mm. about 50 mils per kilo over, over four hours and then reassess them at the end of that, that, that time as to whether it's been successful uh, that might be in the community a telephone conversation, mm -hmm. but they need to have some sort of safety netting that they're dehydrated. So if the strategy that you're using with the rehydration isn't working, there needs to be some safety netting to decide what, what, where they should go, whether they should be admitted at that, that point. Mm. Okay, so let me get this straight. So over four hours, 50 mils per kilo. Yep. Uh, and so, and you're going to be so you work out the total volume, and then you give an, an amount yeah. every ten minutes. So let's say we've got a child that's eight kilos. Yeah. That's going to be about four hundred mils. You think about dividing that up into ten minute aliquots, yeah. and give parents that. You might want to give them a syringe so that they can syringe it into the child if they're young. And, and that's and they record each time they do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's their target. At least they know what they're trying to yeah. achieve. They might not be able to achieve that quite that amount, and less than that might do. Um, and what do you do if you're doing that, and then halfway through they vomit again? I think you can continue. Keep going. Um, that, but obviously, um, if the they perhaps give them a safety netting leaf that if other things are developing, you know, they're becoming drowsy or their clinical condition is changing. If this is happening at home, parents need to know this is what I'm going to do, this is what I should be looking out for that might indicate deterioration. So 
If I'm a mum who's been managing my child at home, um, but they seem to be continuing to vomit, and I'm just worried that maybe some of these red flags are coming up, and the child's assessed um, and is found to be dehydrated and, and shocked, how can you just talk us through that type of scenario? Yeah, so um, that can happen, and it's important, obviously, recognising that there's signs of dehydration and shock, but also the child generally won't look well, that we do our A, B, C, D assessment and usually with their, they're shocked, they're going to have a slightly reduced conscious level or be abnormal neurologically in some way and, and look unwell. I think whenever you examine a child, the first question you ask yourself is, do they look well um, and do a careful A, B, C, D assessment? And if I was in primary care with that, I think the first thing I do, particularly in the younger children, is think, do I need to check the blood sugar? Is that something you could possibly do something about in primary care? And alongside that, thinking if they look really unwell and you think they might be shocked, give them oxygen. Mm. Okay. I think those are two things you can do in primary care. Um, but you're going to need, this is an emergency. If they're shocked, they need intravenous fluids. And in a primary care setting, I think it's unlikely anyone's going to be able to put in a cannula and give them a bolus of fluid. So they need transporting to hospital urgently. Mm -hmm. And usually that would be a 999 call. And getting, getting them from the GP surgery up to hospital as quickly as possible and pre-warning the hospital that a child is coming in, mm -hmm. in shocked. Most of the time with gastroenteritis, they're not shocked. Mm -hmm. But when, when you are shocked... That needs treating within minutes rather than mm. you know hours, which is the case with mm. dehydration. Yeah, and um, what are the sort of outcomes with those types of patients if they are dealt with sort of quickly? I think as long as you recognise it, mm. um, uh, they'll do very well, and they're a gratifying group of patients to treat with shock because you give them a bolus of fluid, and you, from a child that's looking pretty awful, an hour mm. later having had a bolus of fluid they're looking mm -hmm. very very different yeah. important that we uh, monitor the effects of our bolus of fluid looking you know impact on tachycardia in particular as a responder uh, as a, a measure of response to to the fluids important as well that we do bloods beforehand particularly a lactate is very useful mm. and what's the difference then between the type of patient who doesn't get shocked who just sort of has ongoing dehydration grumbles along and then someone who does is it because of a certain toxin or is it because they it's been just been going on too long or do we, do you see is there any rhyme or reason that's a really good question i don't know i think we know all the answers to it i think it's more likely in the at-risk groups yeah. and the duration of the gastroenteritis if you keep losing extracellular fluid you will start to leak out of your intravascular space and I think it is really important, that distinction between extravascular dehydration, intravascular shock, but there is a big overlap. Okay, so if this all is managed at home and then the child gets better, how long will it take for them to get back to normal? Okay, hopefully once the vomiting stopped, it doesn't come back once you've cleared those ketones, but unfortunately the diarrhoea can carry, carry on longer. And I think on average it's about five days, but we don't really get worried until certainly it's been at two weeks of continuous diarrhea okay. and at that point you might be starting to think well could they have a problem with lactose in particular we can talk 
more about that. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to realise, though, with the diarrhoea, that it doesn't mean that you can't feed and have calories. We don't regrade milks now. Mm-hmm. They can have whatever they fancy eating. And whatever you put in the top end comes out as diarrhoea in the bottom end. Mm-hmm. But they'll still be absorbing most of the calories from mm-hmm. that. And what worsens the prognosis for having protracted diarrhoea and lactose intolerance is protein is uh, calorie deficiency mm-hmm. so getting food in early you're going to have less less, mm-hmm. less long-term problems okay so in a way that might be counterintuitive for some people because they might think they're protecting their gut by not putting food in but yeah. actually it's good to yeah. eat so you're more likely um, we we'll talk about perhaps lactose intolerance so lactose is a sugar it's a uh, metabolized by the lactase enzyme which is on the villi and the small bowel when you get gastroenteritis particularly if you're calorie depleted for a long period of time the villi slough off and you lose your lactase mm. so um, then uh, you have protracted diarrhea beyond two weeks and you've got to take lactose out of the diet uh, um, until the villi have regrown which takes about six to eight weeks and if you don't take the lactose out of the diet can it not just go through what's the What's what damage can that do? Well, when the lactose, which is then not digested in the small bowel, hits the large bowel, it gets gobbled up by the bacteria there and produces air, well, gas, mm. um, and you get explosive, watery diarrhea, okay. some abdominal bloating, um, and it's unpleasant. Um, and as soon as you take lactose out of the diet, nothing to do with cow's milk protein, but as soon as mm. you take lactose out of the diet. The symptoms will disappear. There's no diagnostic tests. It's just a clinical diagnosis, and it improves as soon as you take lactose out of the diet. But the important message for parents, this is going to be a short-term problem, because as soon as those villi have regrown, they can gradually start to reintroduce lactose. That said, you do need to regrade them a little bit, because Mm -hmm. even when the villi have regrown, they're not having, having any lactose, so their lactase enzyme will need to upregulate. So you need to gradually introduce a little bit of lacto, uh, lactose into the diet okay. and normalise it over a few weeks. Okay, so how long would you expect this um, intolerance to last? Six to eight weeks okay, usually, fine. and then you can be regrading them, yeah. get them back on a normal diet, mm. end of problem. Would you have any advice as to how to prevent this? Because obviously it, if it's caused by a virus, then it's transmitted, I'm guessing, by contact yeah. with you know, touching surfaces and things. Yeah. Is there any way we can avoid it? So I think it's a good you know, message when you're, it's going to go around the family unless they can take steps to um, stop that. So particularly washing hands, mm-hmm. particularly before you wash, uh, prepare food. Um, the child, the index child with the gastroenteritis having their own towel and uh, not sharing towels. I think those sort of simple hygiene advice, but it's important the family know that it's going to be infectious mm-hmm. and it's difficult enough dealing with one child with diarrhoea and vomiting, dealing with a whole family mm-hmm. is... Uh, no joy. Yeah. And would you have any final tips or pieces of advice? I think most of the time, this is something that could be managed by parents. If they've got gastroenteritis and have significant vomiting and diarrhoea, even though they look well and are not dehydrated when you see them, unless you take action to increase their fluid intake, um, they will get dehydrated. So prevention is better than cure. I try and keep ahead of the 
dehydration. If they're in the green section, that they're not dehydrated, don't just send them away. Give them advice about continuing to feed, continuing to breastfeed, and the supplementary feeds um, as recommended on Wessex Healthy Together. Um, and even in the amber section, when they're dehydrated but not shocked, a lot of the time these can be managed at home uh, as long as you have that safety netting support. That's great. Thanks ever so much, Phil. It's a pleasure. And I'm sure lots of people are going to find this talk really useful. Um, GPs and paediatric trainees alike. Don't forget to head over to Healthier Together and check out the clinical pathways and parent information leaflets there too. No, I'm not receiving advertising revenue for promoting this website. Um, I just think it's an awesome resource developed by local clinicians and really relevant. Don't forget the red flags, blood in the poo, very high fever, uh, tender abdomen, um, as well as if the child looks very unwell, is less than three months or is, seems to have been vomiting more than three times in 24 hours with more than six episodes of diarrhoea, do look out for shock. Remember to act on this quickly, check the pulses, cat refill time. This is a loss of intravascular volume, which needs to be replaced with a fluid bolus with good effect often. If the child's just dehydrated or heading that way, don't forget, really useful, two mils per kilo every 10 minutes over four hours, which equates to roughly 50 mils per kilo over four hours. This was Fontenelle. Thank you so much again, Phil Wiley. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And I will look forward to catching up with you again on the next episode of Fontenelle. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.